0: Good morning, and thank you for letting me spend some time with you. Uh, It's always fun uh, when somebody gets up and introduces you because you don't know what they're going to say, right? It's like, um, but uh, Kyle, I appreciate it. You just keep it nice and short. That's the way uh, it it should be. Uh, A good introduction just gets things going, it shows the importance of what we're going to talk about today. We're not here to talk about anybody else, but we're here to talk about Jesus Christ. So I don't know if you've ever had to do introductions before, either for a speaker or for a family member. Uh, perhaps if you're in school, uh, that, that's been a part of one of the assignments that you have. You have to do an introduction, and you have to talk about somebody. You're going to talk about their family. You're going to talk about their background, about their abilities, or about their purpose. What, what would you say? So how, how would you introduce Jesus? If you had to introduce Jesus, what would you say about him? It might depend a little bit on who the audience was. Uh, Is the audience made up of mostly Jewish people? And in that case, you might uh, highlight how Jesus fulfills hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. Or um, if you were, and in that case, it'd be much like uh, Matthew does in his gospel. And he then highlights that Jesus Christ is in the line of King David. Uh, or if you have an audience that primarily loves knowledge and loves teaching, then maybe you would be like Luke and you would emphasize the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, or if you uh, were writing to a Roman audience, and then it's mostly uh, people that aren't as interested in um, teaching, but they're more about action, then you would go and you would introduce them the way Mark does. And if you would turn to Mark 1, and we will look at uh, Mark chapter one this morning this is how mark the evangelist introduces jesus christ and he tailors his introduction to his audience and to his ongoing message so mark 1 says this it begins with an extremely loaded title That first verse says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And and there he introduces all the themes that he's about to talk about. The, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what does it mean for us to know him as the Son of God? I love Calvin's summary of this. He says, the gospel, therefore, is the public exhibition of the Son of God manifested in the flesh to deliver a ruined world and to restore men." From death to life, it is justly called good and joyful message, for it contains perfect happiness. The gospel contains for us, there's the good news that contains for us perfect happiness. And so this is how John's introduction continues. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw (coughs) the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And that's how Mark launches into his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There's no genealogy like Matthew, no long list of names. There's no nativity, no birth story because Romans wouldn't have cared about that like there is in Luke. There's no really great deep theological treatise like there is in John. He just dives right in and he gives us three events. Those three events are covered other places in Scripture, but he highlights these three events. And and it's strange to me because as I study through the Gospel of Mark, usually Mark gives the longest account of events, but in this case, he just quickly summarizes these. And why does he do that? What's unique about Mark, unlike any of the other Gospels, is that Mark wants us to see in these events a heavenly perspective on Jesus so that we can fully know him and see what it means to follow him. And that's what we are looking at today, that, that we need a heavenly perspective. We need something more um, to see, we, than what we have in ourselves. We need a heavenly perspective in, on Jesus in order to fully know him and to follow him. And in these three events, there are three heavenly perspectives on them. And I just want to uh, w- walk through the introduction to Mark as we continue your series on the life of Jesus. The first heavenly perspective is that Jesus is announced by John. And in, or this, um, the Gospel of Mark actually begins with a quote from Isaiah, and what's interesting is not just from Isaiah, it's actually from Isaiah, Malachi, and Exodus, but he emphasizes Isaiah because Isaiah is one of the most important prophets, and it becomes an important lens through which we understand the Gospel of Mark. So I want you to take that piece of information, Isaiah is important, and tuck that in your mind because we'll, we'll need that in just a little bit. But right now, his point is that Messiah would not come unannounced, that there would come somebody before him who will prepare the way. And scripture makes it clear that that this, this is very evidently the person of John the Baptist. Not John, the writer of the gospel, but John, whose ministry is so characterized by baptism that he is called John the Baptist. And in verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness because that's often where people meet the Lord. And he's preparing the way because these are people who have been lulled into spiritual apathy. So he says, repent, change your minds, and in so doing, change your lives. Don't put your hope in your heritage, the fact that you are from Jerusalem or from Judea, uh, but instead repent. And so now Mark summarizes three aspects of John the Baptist's ministry. So Jesus is announced by John, and he, now he summarizes three aspects of John's ministry. Let's look at them for a moment. First of all, John, well, let's look at John's baptism, or literally just his immersion, or his, his dipping. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what does that mean? Right? Baptism for the forgiveness of sins, does that mean that we are baptized in order to be forgiven for our sins no that 's not actually what this means at all, rather that it is a baptism which uh, which is produced by a forgiveness of sins. so do not be confused, uh, even though this has nothing to do with christian baptism it's not, this in this case was not the means of forgiveness. People were not baptized in order. To be forgiven, they were baptized to show that they had repented. And even Josephus, uh, early, or an early historian, uh, just after this time, who uh, he got that right. So Josephus, if you've ever heard of him, he's a first-century historian, Jewish historian. He knew that John wasn't teaching that baptism leads to forgiveness of sins. He called John the Baptist this. He said he was a good man who exhorted the Jews to righteous lives. To practice justice toward their fellows and piety toward God, and so doing, and join in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed as a consecration of body, implying that the soul is already thoroughly cleansed by behavior. And on the one hand, Josephus got it right. He understood that baptism doesn't save, it's, it's, it's a, a picture of what's already happened, but it's also sad that Josephus misses the significance of who Jesus really was. So that's what Je- John's baptism means. Uh, what it, well, then also it talks about his appearance. So it says in the next couple of verses, he was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt and he ate uh, oak, locusts and wild honey. One of the things that my kids love to tease me about is a a few years ago, and you can just tuck this away for an idea as well, uh, our uh, VBS had a competition to raise money, and somebody had the idea, I don't know why, that for every dollar or a certain amount of money that the the kids raised, uh, the more money they got, more pastors would have to eat a cricket, And so that was like, okay, if we raise this much money, then Pastor Zach has to eat a cricket. If we we eat this much money, um, then Pastor Mike has to eat eat a cricket as well. So needless to say, uh, they raised enough money. So like John, I can say uh, that I've had bugs. Anybody else uh, had had that? Out. They actually just taste kind of grassy. Mine were bacon flavored, thankfully. I don't think that was the case with John because he would have been a a good uh, Jew. Uh, So... (laughs) But, uh, so that it talks about his diet, but also it talks about his appearance. Why, why does he appear uh, in this manner? Well, some people say, well, it's just because he was ascetic. He was living out in the wilderness, and he's like those other people who have, have uh, they, they try to, to be as crazy as possible. I don't know if that's, that's really the case. Uh, when, when we read this, and especially we see he wore camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, what we would immediately think of if we were Jewish people is Elijah that this is somebody who is coming just like the prophet Elijah. And it connects then John to the Old Testament. John then becomes a bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. And not only that, but by his diet and by his appearance, what John was doing is he was also standing over and against the Jewish establishment that prided itself in its wealth and its appearance. This morning in Sunday school, Uh, Pastor Kyle talked about uh, King David, and King David was initially overlooked (coughs) because he didn't have a great outward appearance. God looks on the the heart, not on the outward appearance. But even in John the Baptist's appearance, what he was doing is he was confronting and condemning the excessive, self-indulgent lifestyle of the religious rulers of his day. So, We see his his baptism and his appearance, but we also now look at his preaching. And he says uh, just uh, two statements. First of all, after me comes one more powerful, one mightier than I, and I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. Do you know whose job it was to untie the the sandal in, in a Jewish home? It was the lowest ranking Gentile slave in the home. It was their job to take off the sandals. Jewish slaves didn't even have to do such a demeaning job as that, but John says, there's somebody coming who is so much more powerful than me, and he I'm not even worthy to do the most de- degrading job his, uh, when I'm in his presence. And second, in verse 8, he says, um, I, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And like and and, and he's looking forward to the fulfillment of so many of those messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. So we put all of this together: his appearance, his baptism, uh, even his preaching. What do we learn by the by the quotations of Scripture and by his ministry? And the sense that he is a like Elijah, and by his preaching, John's announcement is showing that this this is really important for us to understand that Jesus is not an afterthought in the plan of God. John is announced, or Jesus announced. Excuse me, Jesus. Jesus is announced by, my my kids always give me a hard time because I have this problem that I always say the opposite of what I'm saying. So I remember one time um, we were in the backyard and there's this cat in our neighborhood and we have dogs and chickens, but we don't have cats right now. (coughs) My kids would love them. Um, And I was like, oh, cats, I don't want them in my backyard. And I go, stupid black cat. And my wife goes, It's a white cat. I'm like, for this day, I don't know why I say white when I mean, like, black when I mean white. When I say Jesus when I mean John. Hopefully you'll understand what I'm trying to say here at this point. Um, It's just a problem. I I always say the opposite of what, like, I've got too many words in my head. Uh, Jesus is announced by John in order to show that Jesus is not just some afterthought, but he is now the climax of the story that has been unfolding since the beginning of time Israel is not the story, and John the Baptist is not the story. The greatest of story of all is now coming to a climax, and this Jesus Christ, and He is the central figure in all of history. Jesus is not just some little second, second thought, but it's, He is the, the plan. He is the summary of everything that's happened and it takes us all the way back to the Exodus when God delivers his people and then through their times of exile. And, and even now, we realize that God hasn't forgotten them, but he's, con, he's continuing that story by announcing Jesus Christ through the John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. And oh, that we would have John's attitude. Isn't his perspective Amazing. Who else could say that they're the bridge between the Old and the New Testament? And yet he knows that he is just an instrument. He is just a a mouthpiece. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do a slave's job when I'm in the presence of my Savior. And he realizes that he is but a small part in the biggest story. How often do we find ourselves thinking, oh, I'm the center of the story. Everything all revolves around me. Oh, really, I think God could use me in all of these amazing ways. But our, our job is not to point to ourselves. Our job is to point to the Lord Jesus Christ and to make him famous and to show that the story, the, the, the entire story of the Bible is all about him. So John knew that his ministry wasn't to make himself great, but that he was to connect all the Old Testament to this, this new, or to Jesus Christ who is, is the climax of the story. And we need that heavenly perspective in order to understand what it means to know him and to follow him. So why is Jesus the center of the story? And the next, next event gives us a clue, and that is the, that Jesus is affirmed by God. He was announced by John, and now he is affirmed by the, the Father. Now, this scene is really important because it's actually one of the few events that's recorded in all four Gospels, but it kind of starts out a little bit boring. It says that Jesus, the center of the story, doesn't come, place, come from any place fancy like Paris or Chicago or Des Moines or Iowa City. He's from Danville, right? <laughs> He's from New London. I don't, I don't know. Like, just nothing... He says here, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, nothing of biblical or prophetic significance ever happened there. It's a no-name town with no value at all. Sorry if are from Danville or from New London. Um, and, and, and here we now see the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get there, we have to say, well, wait a second. Why is Jesus being baptized? And we have to ask that question. That's a pretty good question. In fact, John answers, asks that question uh, in Matthew. He says, why, uh, if baptism is for the forgiveness of, or, uh, not for, but demonstrates forgiveness of sins, um, why should you be baptized? You should be baptizing me, is what John says. Uh, so why does Jesus, that's, a, that's an important question. So why does Jesus allow himself to be baptized? First, by allowing him to be himself to be baptized by John, what he's doing is what we've already talked about: is he's connecting himself with John's ministry. As we saw, Jesus is not some new idea, but he is the climax of the great story. And second of all, Jesus is bapt His baptism identifies us with or identifies him with sinners. Matthew. says that Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And by his baptism, he declares what Isaiah 53.12 says, what he says was numbered with transgressors. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And through his baptism, he is identifying with sinners. So just read this scene with me. He's baptized in the Jordan of the River. And when he comes up out of the water, immediately, what's the first thing that he sees? This is actually a really poetic word. He sees heaven tearing or literally ripping open, which makes us think of the book that I said we would need later. What book did I say we would need later? Isaiah, right? It makes us think of Isaiah 64:1 that says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And now this is happening. God breaks into human history to deliver his people. God breaks through and he is coming to us. And now Jesus is affirmed by the Father. So let's look at three. And we could study for a really long time the baptism of Jesus Christ. I just want to see three ways that Jesus affirms or that Father affirms Jesus. So Jesus is affirmed by God. First of all, the Father affirms Jesus as the spirit-empowered Messiah, and it says that he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn up open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. The Spirit rests upon Jesus. And what do we think about that? First of all, we think about the Spirit hovering over the, the waters and creation. But now we get to see this new creation uh, starting with Jesus Christ. And we're also led back to what Old Testament book? To Isaiah, right? Isaiah 11 says this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's really significant, isn't it? the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on in Isaiah again to say, the spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And the spirit upon Jesus shows us It doesn't make him, but it shows us that he is the spirit-empowered Messiah. So we know who he is now. He is is the Messiah. And how does Jesus go throughout his earthly ministry? Jesus goes throughout his entire earthly ministry preaching and uh, doing miracles in the power and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. So he's the um, uh, spirit-empowered Messiah. But not only that, but (laughs) he's also the beloved son. He says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so what book does that take us back to the Old Testament? Psalms, okay? <laughs> Psalm 2 is one of the great royal psalms where in that, the, the pronouncement of the king, you are my beloved son, or you are, you are the, the son. Today I have begotten you. I have installed you. Now Jesus did not become the son at the baptism but it just pronoun- or it, it declares for everybody else the pleasure that God has over him. I'm going to step aside for a moment and just tell you some truth on the baptism of Jesus Christ that has resonated most with me in the last few years as a parent. So this, this is free of charge today, uh, but just think about now this as a parent. When we think about the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. The Father proclaims from heaven that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we often think about these theologically and rightfully so. And the baptism of Jesus, and I hope you know this, refutes an heresy that's both ancient and shows itself in present day called modalism that teaches that God is, there is one person, God is one person manifesting himself in three different modes. Got that? Uh, but the baptism of Jesus Christ t- or teaches us, or refutes that because you have the Father as a person present, you have the Son present as a, a person, and you have the Spirit present as a person, and so you have all three present at one time. It's not three manifestations, but it's three persons, and we see them all present. But uh, this is where I want to take that even further. In addition to this being a great text that teaches us theology also teaches us something about important about relationships the trinity is foundational for all our relationships that jesus that, that god has always existed in throughout all eternity in relationship becomes a foundation for us and it becomes a model actually for us as fathers someone had said has said that this verse right here is the essence of fatherhood Fathers showing their children their constant pleasure in them. When we are with our kids, what we do is we model the Lord Jesus Christ and we show unqualified delight in our children. We don't belittle them publicly or we don't get embarrassed by them um, and make stupid apologies uh, for, for them. Instead, we let them see our joy. We, we tell them, uh, like God our Father, we tell them that they are our beloved children with whom we are well pleased. And not because they're any, just, just simply because they are our, our children. And something uh, that we can, we can learn about parenting even from, from uh, this text here. So, the Father affirms that Jesus is the empowered, Spirit-empowered Messiah, that he is the beloved Son. And finally, the Father affirms Jesus as the suffering servant. So he says this final phrase, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And where does that phrase come from? What, take a guess. What Old Testament book do you think that comes from? So yeah, not Psalms. I don't know. Isaiah is right. So you got it right. So I, again, we're back to Isaiah and now it's Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, one says this, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And Isaiah 42 is the first in a chain of prophecies about the servant that will come to deliver God's people. But unlike other servants, he will be a suffering servant. And this leads us to embrace Jesus Christ as the suffering servant, Will we know him as the Son? Yes, as the Son of God. But we, will we also see him as the suffering servant? So now this is, this is possibly one of my favorite parts of the, uh, studying the book of Mark. <clears throat> when you study the Gospels, uh, you discovered some of the greatest fruit. You'll find the greatest fruit in your study when you compare the differences in the Gospels rather than just trying to synthesize them. You know that when you're studying them, when you're looking at Matthew and Mark and Luke, and you say, wow, they're a little bit different. I'm not intimidated by that. I actually love that. Those little differences become a, a way, a window to see some of the greatest truths. So I'm looking for the subtle differences in the way that they frame the story. So if, if you want to, you can turn over to Matthew 3.17. Uh, keep your finger here or not, or otherwise I'll just quote it for you. In Matthew 3.17, we also have the baptism of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew 3.17, it says, the voice uh, the, the comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Mark says, you are my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And that doesn't seem like that significant of a difference, but I actually think that it's quite fascinating. In Matthew So did you you catch the difference? This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. Matthew says, this is my beloved son. Mark says, you are my beloved son. So what's, what's the difference? In Matthew, John the Baptist, and perhaps others around, hear the heavenly affirmation of who Jesus is. But in Mark, it's Jesus who comes out of the water and only he hears in his telling, you are my son. And in Mark, it's amazing because at this point, who knows who Jesus is? John the Baptist, God the Father, and Jesus. Nobody else knows at this point. And this sets up an amazing narrative because throughout the rest of the book, it's all these questions about who Jesus is. Who, who is this person who can do amazing things? And every single time people start to get close to understanding who Jesus is through his power, he pushes them away and says, nope, you're not quite there yet we just work through the, the Gospels. Is he, he teaches, uh, just in a few verses later, they say, what is this? What's this new kind of teaching? Or as he heals a paralytic, they ask, who can for, forgive sins but God alone? And he's always being questioned about his identity. When he calms the storm in, in chapter 4, they say, who then is this? But Jesus then keeps pushing them away. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want them to understand that he is the son of God in power only, but that they would see that he is the son of God and the suffering servant. And Mark chapter 8, and that great central point within the book, uh, they're at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus, now, they have been asking the question, who are you, Jesus? And now Jesus turns around and says, who do people say that I am? And they say John the Baptist, or others Elijah. But they said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus says, Don't tell anybody about it, but what does he do next? In the very next verse in 831, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus keeps his identity a mystery because unless you can understand with a heavenly perspective that Jesus is also the suffering servant, you cannot understand what it means that he is the Son of God. Jesus is affirmed by the Father. He is He is more than man. He is fully God. But if you truly understand Him, you have to set a, you're, you your very Your very expectations and assumptions will be upended. To truly understand who he is, you need to embrace him as the suffering servant. So, to review, Jesus is announced by John. He is the central character of all of history. He's also now he's now affirmed by the Father, and we see the cosmic scope of the significance of the story. And finally, do we know that he's the real deal? Do we? How do we know that Jesus Christ is? the real real deal and that is that Jesus is authenticated by trial now this is the the briefest and yet in some sense the harshest or the most raw or rough accounting of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ there's no there's no dialogue there's no scripture there's no hollywood special effects at this moment it's just really fast and it says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals. What do we make about that? Mark is the only one who mentions that, and the angels were ministering to them. So let's leave Mark for just a moment and bring in some truth from Matthew and Luke and just think about this theologically with a few questions. There are two questions, and I'm really thankful for a theologian, uh, Bruce Ware, who has helped me think more clearly about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ in the face of temptation. So we, we have to ask two questions. We usually start with the question, could, why couldn't Jesus sin? Or was he, was, like, could Jesus actually have sinned? And as theologians, we say, no, that Jesus could not have sinned. Why couldn't Jesus sin? Because Jesus is fully God. And James 1 says that, that, God is, that God cannot be tempted by evil. So Jesus cannot be tempted. So could Jesus have sinned? So even in the face of all these temptations that, that Satan puts before him, the kingdoms of this world that he can have without going through the cross, could Jesus have sinned? The answer is no. <coughs> Why? Because he was fully God. Now, this is where I think it gets more help, or another thing that gets helpful. There is a second question, and that is, why didn't Jesus sin? And that's different. Why couldn't Jesus sin? Because he was fully God, and his deity protected him from that. Why didn't Jesus sin? And if we go to Matthew, and and we're in Mark, what happens? Satan tempts him, takes him to the temple, and says, throw yourself down. What does Jesus say? No, it is written. I I am not gonna put the Lord my God to to a test. I'm not gonna test him. And and one by one in all of those temptations, Jesus uses the scriptures in order to battle temptation. So why couldn't Jesus sin? Because he was fully God. Why didn't Jesus sin? Because he relied upon the word of God and the spirit of God. So let me give you an illustration, and, and, and I'll adapt this again from Bruce Ware. So m- maybe if, you're, um, um, if you love math out there, that's gr- I loved it when I was younger. Don't do as much of it now as a banker for a while and, and, and did some of it then. But imagine having the hardest math test that you have ever had. And you go in, and the teacher lets you bring in a calculator, and you can do that. And you, uh, but you say I want to do this without a calculator. You go through the entire test, and you take that test. And at no point you do the entire test fully based upon your own knowledge. And you you get an A on the test. Why did you get an A? You did it, you uh, you got an A because you you relied upon your own knowledge. Now let's say that you didn't know something. Um, you. <coughs> uh, you, you wouldn't have left it alone. You have that calculator that could have stepped in. Why couldn't you have failed this? Why did you not fail the test? Because you relied on your own knowledge. Why couldn't you fail? Because you had a calculator there to protect you. Or to use another illustration, we could say it like, like this. Let's say that somebody is going to try to uh, break the record for the longest swim. And they're gonna go some, I, I don't even know what that is, I hate swimming but you, you're, gonna, you're gonna swim hundreds of miles <clears throat> and you've trained and trained and trained for it. <clears throat> and swimming in the ocean, for your safety, a boat comes alongside of you to make sure that you're safe the entire time. And you get to the end of that and you break the record. You actually now have the longest record for uh, the, the longest swim in, in the world. Why didn't you drown? because you had trained and you relied on the abilities that you had. Now, why couldn't you drown? Because right there along with you was uh, that boat to guarantee that you would be safe. And the same would be true of Jesus Christ. Why couldn't he sin? He was fully God. Why didn't he sin? Because he relied upon the spirit. And that then sets up for us the ability and shows us how we can face temptation as well. He has gone before us and shown us that by the word and by the spirit, the same word and the same spirit, we have, we have access to those things. We can battle temptation in that same way. Unlike Adam and Eve who were in a perfect garden when they were tempted, Jesus was in the wilderness and yet he was completely without sin. So just talk for a moment about that phrase in the wild beasts that always catches me off guard right like that we look more for the differences than for uh, the similarities and he says the wild beasts wild beasts are never good news by the way Um, in any age they're scary you don't want to be outside uh, with them but with the early church they may have represented even more and this might be a little bit of sanctified imagination at this point uh, for one of the ways that Christians, particularly in Rome, where Mark's audience would have been, were persecuted by, was by being wrapped in the, an, the skins of wild animals, and then dogs were allowed to attack them. And it could be that early Christians who see, uh, who read this could see an opportunity to identify with Jesus in this little statement. And what Mark does here in Mark 1 is he's setting up for us a pattern for following Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we want to know him in the glory of his resurrection, but we also know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Uh, our home church today, one of the things that's happening is we're uh, having a baptism service. So that's going on uh, or just happened just a little bit within our, our church. or that's actually in about 15 minutes, a couple more people are going to be baptized. And I'm, and I'm thankful for that. What a, what a wonderful time, a, a high point, a celebration celebration. It's a wonderful high point in, in the life of someone's life as they've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they've identified with Him. But Pastor Mike Augsburger, uh as we work with new believers, one of the things that he often tells them this at their baptism is that, in my, he says, in my experience, people who have trusted Christ for salvation, usually a large trial follows right after that. Don't, something, don't be surprised if something surprise or uh, difficult comes into your life to test the reality of your new faith. Why does he say that? Because Jesus Christ has paved that path for us already. He has paved us a path that's not just glory, but it's also that we know him through suffering and we know him as the suffering servant. And so we say with Paul, I want to know you in the glory of your resurrection, but I also want to know you in the fellowship of suffering. So Mark 1 gives us a heavenly perspective on Jesus. And we need that if we're to truly know who he is and what it means to follow him. He's announced by John. He is the one who ties all history together. And may we be like John and proclaim the one who is mightier than us and never proclaim ourselves. And he is affirmed by God. No matter what anybody else says in this world, we know from heaven who Jesus is. He's is the spirit-empowered, beloved son who's also the suffering servant. And we also know that he is authenticated by trial. And we know Jesus in the power of his resurrection, but we also know him and the fellowship of his suffering. Will you pray with me? Father, that, that's our heart's desire, that we would know Jesus. <clears throat> um, we confess how often our thoughts are consumed with self and self-importance, how often we are looking for ways to make ourselves the center of the story. And so, Father, we um, confess that and instead um, say that we are not worthy um, to even stoop down and tie the sandal of our savior thank you that we uh, can know him father thank you that he is uh, has has paved a way for for us by his own life and by his own death and father now this week in large things and even little things i pray that you would uh, draw us closer to know jesus christ We pray this in his name amen